0: listening to KZOM, Public Radio. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we've got some shelf curtains in there. The fifth dimension catapult by Murray Leinster chapter two. The thing is said Tommy feverishly that we've got to find a way to get them back whether it duplicates Denham's results or not. How far away are they? A few hundred yards perhaps said von Holtz wearily or ten million miles. It is the same thing they are in a place where the fifth dimension is the dominant coordinate tommy was pacing up and down the laboratory he stopped and looked through the eyepiece of the extraordinary vision apparatus he tore himself away from it again how does this thing work he demanded von holtz began to unscrew two wing-nuts which kept the top of the aluminum casting in place it is the first piece of apparatus which professor denham made he said precisely i know the theory but i cannot duplicate it every dimension is at right angles to all other dimensions of course the herr professor has a note here he stopped his unscrewing to run over a heap of papers on the workbench papers over which he seemed to have been poring desperately at the time of tommy's arrival he handed a sheet to tommy who read if a creature who was aware of only two dimensions made two right-angled objects and so placed them that all the angles formed by the combination were right angles, he would contrive a figure represented by the corner of a box. He would discover a third dimension. Similarly, if a three-dimensioned man took three right angles and placed them so that all the angles formed were right angles, he would discover a fourth dimension. This, however, would probably be the time dimension, and to travel in time would instantly be fatal. But with four right angles he could discover a fifth dimension, and with five right angles he could discover a sixth. Tommy Reims put down the paper impatiently. "'Of course,' he said brusquely, "'I know all that stuff. But up to the present time nobody has been able to put together even three right angles in practice.' Von Holtz had returned to the unscrewing of the wing-nuts. He lifted off the cover of the dimensoscope. "'It is the thing the Herr Professor did not confide to me,' he said bitterly. "'The secret—the one secret. Look in here.' Tommy looked. The objective glass at the end of the telescope faced a mirror, which was inclined to its face at an angle of forty-five degrees. A beam of light from the objective would be reflected to a second mirror, twisted in a fashion curiously askew. Then the light would go to a third mirror. Tommy looked at that third mirror, and instantly his eyes ached. He closed them, and opened them again. Again they stung horribly. It was exactly the sort of eye-strain which comes of looking through a lens which does not focus exactly, or through a strange pair of eyeglasses. He could see the third mirror, but his eyes hurt the instant they looked upon it, as if that third mirror were distorted in an impossible fashion. He was forced to draw them away. He could see, though, that somehow that third mirror would reflect his imaginary beam of light into a fourth mirror, of which he could see only the edge. He moved his head and still saw only the edge of a mirror he was sure of what he saw because he could look into the wavy bluish translucency all glass shows upon its edge he could even see the thin layer of silver backing but he could not put himself into a position in which more than the edge of that mirror was visible good lord said tommy reams feverishly that mirror a mirror at forty-five degrees said van holtz precisely reflects light At a right angle. There are four mirrors, and each bends a ray of light through a right angle which is also a right angle to all the others. The result is that the dimensoscope looks into what is a fifth dimension, into which no man ever looked before. But I cannot move other mirrors into the positions they have in this instrument. I do not know how." Tommy shook his head impatiently, staring at the so simple yet incredible device, whose theory had been mathematically proven numberless times, but never put into practice before. "'Having made this device,' said von Holtz, the Herr Professor constructed what he termed a catapult. It was a coil of wire, like the large machine there. It jerked a steel ball first vertically, then horizontally, then laterally, then in a fourth dimensional direction, and finally projected it violently off in a fifth dimensional path. He made small hollow steel balls, and sent a butterfly, a small sparrow, and finally a cat into that other world. The steel balls opened of themselves and freed those creatures. They seemed to suffer no distress, therefore he concluded that it would be safe for him to go himself. His daughter refused to permit him to go alone, and he was so sure of his safety that he allowed her to enter the globe with him. She did. I worked the catapult which flung the globe in the fifth dimension and his device for returning failed to operate. Hence, he is marooned." "'But the big catapult—' "'Can you not see that the big catapult is broken?' demanded von Holtz bitterly. "'A special metal is required for the missing parts. That I know how to make, yes. I can supply that. But I cannot shape it. I cannot design the gears which will move it as it should be moved. I cannot make another dimensoscope. I cannot, Herr Riems, Calculate any method of causing four right angles to be all at right angles to each other, it is my impossibility. It is for that that I have appealed to you. You see it has been done. I see that it is done. I can make the metal which alone can be moved in the necessary direction, but I cannot calculate any method of moving it in that direction. If you can do so, Herr Reims, we can perhaps save the Herr Professor Denham. if you cannot got. The death he will die is horrible to think of." "'And his daughter,' said Tommy grimly, "'his daughter, also.'" He paced up and down the laboratory again. Von Holtz moved to the workbench from which he had taken Denham's note. There was a pile of such memoranda thumbed over and over, and there were papers in the angular, precise handwriting which was von Holtz's own, and calculations and speculations and the remains of frantic efforts to work out—somehow the secret which as one manifestation had placed one mirror so that it hurt the eyes to look at it and the other mirror so that from every angle of a normal existence one could see only the edge i have worked herr Reims," said van holtz drearily "Got how i have worked but the herr professor kept something secret and that so essential thing is one of them presently he said tiredly the dimension travelling globe was built in this laboratory It rested here," he pointed. The Herr Professor was laughing and excited at moment of departure. His daughter smiled at me through the window of the globe. There was an undercarriage with wheels upon it. You cannot see those wheels through the dimensoscope. They got into the globe and closed the door. The Herr Professor nodded to me through the glass window. The dynamo was running at its fullest speed. The laboratory smelled of hot oil and of ozone from the sparks. I lifted my hand, and the Herr Professor nodded again, and I threw the switch. This switch, Herr Reims, it sparked as I closed it, and the flash partly blinded me. But I saw the globe rush toward the giant catapult yonder. It leaped upward into the huge coil which whirled madly. Dazed I saw the globe, hanging suspended, in mid-air, two feet from the floor. It shook, once, twice, with violence. Suddenly its outline became hazy and distorted. My eyes ached with looking at it, and then it was gone." Van Holtz's arms waved melodramatically. I rushed to the dimensoscope and gazed through it into the fifth dimension. I saw the globe floating onward through the air, toward that bank of glossy ferns. I saw it settle and turn over, and then slowly right itself as it came to rest. The Herr Professor got out of it. I saw him through the instrument which could look into the dimension into which he had gone. He waved his hand to me, his daughter joined him, surveying the strange cosmos in which they were. The Herr Professor plucked some of the glossy ferns, took photographs, then got back into the globe. I awaited its return to our own world. I saw it rock slightly as he worked upon the apparatus within. I knew that when it vanished from the dimensoscope, it would have returned to our own universe. But it remained as before. It did not move, after three hours of anguished waiting, the Herr Professor came out, and made signals to me of despair. By gestures, because no sound could come through the dimensoscope itself, he begged me to assist him, and I was helpless, made helpless by the Herr Professor's own secrecy. For four days and nights I have toiled, hoping desperately to discover what the Herr Professor had hidden from me. At last I thought of you. I telegraphed to you. If you can assist me. "'I'm going to try it, of course,' said Tommy shortly. He paced back and forth. He stopped and looked through the brass-tubed telescope. Giant tree ferns, unbelievable but real, the steel globe resting partly overturned upon a bank of glossy ferns. Breast high, incredible foliage between the point of vision and that extraordinary vehicle. While Tommy had been talking and listening, while he had been away from the eyepiece, one or other of the occupants of the globe had emerged from it. The door was open, but now the girl came bounding suddenly through the ferns. She called, though it seemed to Tommy that there was a curious air of caution even in her calling. She was excited—hopefully excited. Denham came out of the globe with a clumsy club in his hand, but Evelyn caught his arm and pointed up into the sky. Denham stared, and then began to make wild and desperate gestures, as if trying to attract attention to himself tommy watched for minutes and then swung the dimensoscope around it was extraordinary to be sitting in the perfectly normal brick walled laboratory looking into a slender brass tube and seeing another universe entirely another wild and unbelievable landscape the tree fern forest drew back and the vast steaming morass was again in view there were distant bright golden gleams from the city but Tommy was searching the sky, looking in the sky of a world in the fifth dimension for a thing which would make a man gesticulate hopefully. He found it. It was an aircraft, startlingly close through the telescope. A single figure was seated at its controls, motionless as if bored, with exactly the air of a weary truck driver piloting a vehicle along a roadway he does not really see. And Tommy, being near enough to see the pilot's pose, could see the aircraft clearly—it was totally unlike a terrestrial plane. A single huge and thick wing supported it, but the wing was angular and clumsy-seeming, and its form was devoid of the grace of an earthly aircraft wing, and there was no tail whatever to give the appearance of a living thing—there was merely a long rectangular wing with a framework beneath it, and a shimmering thing which was certainly not a screw propeller but which seemed to draw it. It moved on steadily and swiftly, dwindling in the distance, with its motionless pilot seated before a mass of corded bundles. It looked as if this were a freight-plane of some sort, and therefore made in a strictly utilitarian fashion. It vanished in the haze above the monster swamp, going in a straight line for the Golden City at the world's edge. Tommy stared at it long after it had ceased to be visible. Then he saw a queer movement on the earth near the edge of the morass. Figures were moving—human figures. He saw four of them, shaking clenched fists, and capering insanely, seeming to bellow insults after the oblivious and now invisible flying thing. He could see that they were nearly naked, and that one of them carried a spear, but the indubitable glint of metal was reflected from one of them for an instant, when some metal accoutrement about him glittered in the sunlight. They moved from sight behind thick feathery foliage, and Tommy swung back the brass tube to see the globe again. Denham and his daughter were staring in the direction in which Tommy had seen those human figures. Denham clutched his clumsy club grimly. His face was drawn, and his figure tensed. And suddenly Evelyn spoke quietly, and the two of them then dived into the fern forest and disappeared. Minutes later they returned, dragging masses of tree-fern fronds with which they masked the globe from view they worked hastily desperately concealing the steel vehicle from sight and then denham stared tensely all about shading his eyes with his hand he and the girl withdrew cautiously into the forest it was minutes later that tommy was roused by von holtz's hand on his shoulder what has happened herr reims he asked uneasily the ragged men "'I saw men,' said Tommy, briefly, shaking clenched fists at an aircraft flying overhead, and Denham and his daughter have hidden the globe behind a screen of foliage.' Von Holtz licked his lips fascinatedly. "'The ragged men,' he said in a hushed voice. "'The Herr Professor called them that because they cannot be of the people who live in the Golden City. They hate the people of the Golden City. I think they are bandits, renegades, perhaps. They live in the tree-fern forests, and scream curses at the airships which fly overhead. And they are afraid of those airships. How long did Denham use this thing to look through, before he built his globe? Von Holtz considered. Immediately it worked, he said at last. He began work on a small catapult. It took him one week to devise exactly how to make that. He experimented with it for some days, and began to make the large globe. That took nearly two months the globe and the large catapult together, and also the dimensoscope was at hand. His daughter looked through it more than he did, or myself. "'He should have known what he was up against,' said Tommy, frowning. "'He ought to have taken guns, at least.' "'Is he armed?' Von Holtz shook his head. "'He expected to return at once,' he said desperately. "'Do you see, Herr Reims, the position it puts me in? I may be suspected of murder. I am the Herr Professor's assistant. He disappears. Will I not be accused of having put him out of the way?" "'No,' said Tommy thoughtfully, "'you won't.' He glanced through the brass tube, and paced up and down the room. "'You telephone for someone to repair my car,' he said suddenly and abruptly. "'I am going to stay here and work this thing out. I've got just the glimmering of an idea, but I'll need my car in running order in case we have to go out and get materials—in a hurry.' Von Holtz bowed stiffly, and went out of the laboratory. Tommy looked after him, he even moved to make sure he was gone, and then Tommy Reims went quickly to the workbench on which were the littered notes and calculations von Holtz had been using and which were now at his disposal. But Tommy did not leaf through them. He reached under the blotter beneath the whole pile. He had seen von Holtz furtively push something out of sight, and he had disliked and distrusted von Holtz from the beginning. Moreover, it was pretty thoroughly clear. The Denham had not trusted him too much a trusted assistant should be able to understand at least any experiment performed in a laboratory a Folded sheet of paper came out tommy glanced at it You messed things up, right Denham marooned and you got nothing no plans or figures either when you get them you get your money If you don't you're out of luck if this reams guy can't fix up what you want it'll be just too bad for you There was no salutation, nor any signature, beyond a scrawled and sprawling J. Tommy Ream's jaw set grimly. He folded the scrap of paper and thrust it back out of sight again. "'Pretty,' he said harshly. So a gentleman named J is going to pay Von Holtz for plans or calculations it is hoped I'll provide, which suggests many things. But at least I'll have Von Holtz's help until he thinks my plans or calculations are complete so that's all right tommy could not be expected of course to guess that the note he had read was quite astounding proof of the interest taken in non-euclidean geometry by a vice-king of chicago or that the ranking beer baron of that metropolis was the man who was so absorbed in abstruse theoretic physics tommy moved toward the great solenoid which lay askew upon its wrecked support it had drawn the steel globe toward it and had made that globe vibrate madly twice and then go hazy and vanish it had jerked the globe in each of five directions each at right angles to all the others and had released it when started in the fifth dimension the huge coil was quite nine feet across and would take the steel globe easily it was pivoted in concentric rings which made up a set of gimbals far more elaborate than were ever used to suspend a mariner's compass aboard ship There were three rings, one inside the other, and two rings will take care of any motion in three dimensions. These rings were pivoted, too, so that an unbelievably intricate series of motions could be given to the solenoid within them all. But the device was broken now. A pivot had given way, and shaft and socket alike had vanished. Tommy became absorbed. Some oddity bothered him. He pieced the thing together mentally, and he exclaimed suddenly, There had been four rings of metal one was gone. He comprehended very suddenly. The third mirror in the dimensoscope was the one so strangely distorted by its position, which was at half of a right angle to all the dimensions of human experience. It was the third ring in the solenoid's supports which had vanished, and Tommy, staring at the gigantic apparatus and summoning all his theoretic knowledge and all his brain to work, saw the connection between the two things." the time dimension and the world line he said sharply excited in spite of himself revolving in the time dimension means telescoping in the world line it would be a strain no matter could endure the mirror in the dimensoscope was not pointing in a fourth dimension it did not need to it was reflecting light at a right angle and hence needed to be only at half of a right angle to the two courses of the beam it reflected But to whirl the steel globe into a fifth dimension, the solenoid's support had for one instant to revolve in time. For the fraction of a second, it would have literally to pass through its own substance. It would be required to undergo precisely the sort of strain involved in turning a hollow, seamless metal globe inside out. No metal could stand such a strain. No form of matter known to man could endure it. "'It would explode,' said Tommy, excitedly to himself, alone in the great bare laboratory. Steel itself would vaporize. It would wreck the place.' And then he looked blank, because the place had very obviously not been wrecked. And yet a metal ring had vanished, leaving no trace. Von Holtz came back. He looked frightened. "'A—a a repairman, Herr Reims, he said, stammering, "'is on the way. And Herr Reims, Tommy barely heard him for a moment tommy was all scientist confronted with the inexplicable yet groping with a blind certainty toward a conclusion he very vaguely foresaw he waved his hand impatiently the herr jaccaro is on the way here stammered von holtz tommy blinked remembering that von holtz had told him he could make a certain metal the only metal which could be moved in the fourth dimension Jacaro," he said blankly the friend of the herr professor Denham." He advanced the money for the Herr Professor's experiments. Tommy heard him with only half his brain, though that half instantly decided that von Holtz was lying. The only Jacaro Tommy knew of was a prominent gangster from Chicago who had recently cemented his position in Chicago's underworld by engineering the amalgamation of two once-rival gangs. Tommy knew in a vague fashion that von Holtz was frightened—that he was terrified in some way and that he was inordinately suspicious of someone and filled with a queer desperation. "'Well,' said Tommy, abstractedly, the thought he needed was coming—a metal which would have full tensile strength up to a certain instant, and then disrupt itself without violence into a gas, a vapor. It would be an alloy, perhaps. It would be—' He struck at his own head with his clenched fist, angrily demanding that his brain bring forth the thought that was forming slowly, the metal that could be revolved in time without producing a disastrous explosion, and without requiring an impossible amount of power." He did not see von Holtz looking in the eyepiece of the dimensoscope. He stared at nothing, thinking concentratedly, putting every bit of energy into sheer thought, and suddenly, like the explosion he sought a way to avoid, the answer came, blindingly clear. He surveyed that answer warily. A tremendous excitement filled him. "'I've got it,' he said softly to himself. "'By God, I know how he did the thing!' Von Holtz was looking into the dimensoscope tube. He was staring into that other extraordinary world in which Denham and his daughter were marooned. And Von Holtz's face was utterly deathly white, and he was making frantic, repressed gestures, and whispering little whimpering phrases to himself. They were unintelligible but the deathly pallor of his cheeks and the fascinated dribbling fullness of his lips brought Tommy Reams suddenly down to earth. "'What's happening?' demanded Tommy sharply. Von Holtz did not answer. He made disjointed, moaning little exclamations to himself. He was twitching horribly as he looked through the telescope into that other world. Tommy flung him aside and clapped his own eye to the eyepiece. And then he groaned. The telescope was pointed at the steel globe upon that ferny bank, no more than a few hundred yards away, but two dimensions removed from earth. The screening mass of tree fronds had been torn away. A swarm of ragged, half-naked men was gathered about the globe. They were armed with spears and clubs in the main. But there were other weapons of intricate design whose uses Tommy could not even guess at. He did not try. He was watching the men as they swarmed about and over the steel sphere. Their faces were brutal and savage, and now they were distorted with an insane hate. It was the same awful gibbering hatred he had sensed in the caperings of the four he had seen bellowing vituperation at an airplane. They were not savages. Somehow he could not envision them as primitive. Their features were hard-bitten, seamed with hatred, and with vice unspeakable, and they were white. The instant impression any man would have received was that here were broken men—fugitives, bandits, assassins—here were renegades or worse from some higher civilized race. They battered hysterically upon the steel globe. It was not the attack of savages upon a strange thing. It was the assault of desperate broken men upon a thing they hated. A glass pane splintered and crashed. Spears were thrust into the opening while mouths opened as if in screams of insane fury, and then suddenly the door of the globe flew wide. The ragged men did not wait for anyone to come out. They fought each other to get into the opening, their eyes glaring madly, filled with the lust to kill. End of chapter 2